<laughs> Good morning. I'm glad that you're here. If you would go ahead and find Ephesians chapter 5 in your Bibles, and you should have a roll sheet at your table. If you want to go ahead and fill out that roll sheet, that would be super helpful. Uh, and then if you're not facing me yet, if you would turn your chair and face me just so that we're all on the same page looking at one another, that would be awesome. So Ephesians chapter 5, check your roll sheet, turn your chairs and face me. While you're looking for Ephesians 5, I'll just kind of put our cards on the table and say, this morning we're going to look at probably the most famous passage on marriage in the Bible. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 through 33. It's a controversial passage in our culture, but I pray that we might see together the, the beautiful design that God has crafted in marriage between a man and a woman. It does beg the question, though, because y'all ain't married, uh, and yet you're not even close. You know what I mean? You're not even close to being married. So, so why, if, if all Scripture is profitable, what is the profit for you to, to learn from Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 through 33? How should you come to benefit from this passage if you're not married? Or, as I said, not even close to being married. There are a few reasons why I think it'll be helpful. So first, this morning, many, if not most of you, will one day be married. The Lord hasn't promised you a husband or a wife, but the, the natural design and flow of things is that the, the majority of you in the room will one day most likely have a spouse. So getting a grasp on the design and display of a godly marriage will help you as you grow in godliness as a man or a woman right now. So looking to the future of not what is promised, but what can usually be expected, this is helpful for you to get now. Second, you are surrounded by marriages, right? You're surrounded by husbands and wives, maybe your parents or dear friends of your family or older siblings or cousins or uh, pastors and other leaders in the church, people who are in authority over you, perhaps at school or at work or on a sports team. Some of those marriages that you are surrounded by are great. Some of them are not. And so knowing God's design for marriage will give us some clarity of vision when we witness the marriages around us. We might see what is good and right and true, what is good and godly and biblical, and what is not. So you'll most likely one day be married. You're surrounded by marriages. And then third, marriage, as we will see today, is a picture of a greater reality. It's a sign that points us to Christ and the church. Which means, and this is key, marriage is not ultimate. Marriage is not eternal. It's not the end all be all of life. It's a sign that points us to a greater reality that being right with God is eternal, is ultimate, is supreme. So this passage will help us keep the main thing the main thing. All right, so let's read together, starting in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22. We're going to look at what God's design is for wives in marriage, what God's design is for husbands in marriage, and then the mystery of marriage. That's the title of the message this morning. The mystery of marriage as it relates to Christ and the church. Bless you, bless you. So let's start verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, 
even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Let's pray before we go any further. Oh God in heaven, I'm grateful that we get to gather once again this morning on this Lord's Day and open up your word and hear you speak. I pray that as we think about what it means to be a godly wife or a godly husband, we might see the truth that it means nothing more than being a godly woman or a godly man in a set of circumstances that your providence brings to us. So God, I pray that you might help us to see the beautiful design of marriage, the beautiful picture that it is for Christ in the church, but you might help us all to rightly value it, not as ultimate, not as eternal, but as a sign to something far greater. So Lord, I pray that you might help us to hear your word and your truth, to be transformed by the power of your spirit and your word. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, if you're taking notes this morning, our first section, verses 22 through 24, is on the delightful submission of wives. The delightful submission of wives. Now, the immediate context of this passage, as we're diving into verse 22, is what happens immediately before it, something that we talked about last week. The immediate context is walking in a manner worthy of the Lord and the life of the body of Christ as one of mutual submission. So so take your Bible, maybe flip a page or go just a couple of verses back to verse 18. Paul writes this. He says, do not get drunk with wine for that's debauchery, but be filled with the spirit. So he's talking to all of the church and he's saying, I want you to be filled with the spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So Paul has already said in the life of the church, there needs to be this rhythm, this model of deference of considering others more important than yourselves, of seeking to outdo one another in showing honor, of loving and serving and being gracious and kind to one another, this mutual submission in the life of the body. So as we move to marriage and then other relationships next week, we need to remember that we're thinking of the context of believers in the local church who are all following Jesus together. So when wives are called to submit here in a particular way, which is, to their own husbands, not to men, or fill in the blank. It is to your own husbands. Then we should be well aware that submission does not imply inferiority. It doesn't imply less importance or anything like that because God, through Paul, has already called every believer to live a life of submission as a member of the body of Christ. Ian Hamilton, a commentator, says it like this. He says, in the New Testament, the idea of submission is voluntary yielding in love, pursuing the interests of others and not your own, no matter how noble. So it's a, it's a yielding, it's a deferring in love. And this submission, Paul says, is as to the Lord. So wives honor Christ as they embody this design of delightful submission to their husband's leadership. 
Now, this submission is not because man is more spiritually mature or because men are smarter than women or stronger than women or wiser than women. In fact, a faithful husband will be well aware of the discrepancies between him and his wife and show deference to the skills and gifts and talents of his wife as he leads her and his home. Now, just give you an example. My wife is a bookkeeper at an accounting firm. So guess who does our budget? Not me. Like I don't, I don't have nearly the kind of skill set that my wife has to be able to manage numbers and money and finances. She's built for that kind of thing. She lives in that world all the time. And so I can defer and say, well, you, you have obviously the skill set here to, to, to manage the finances of our home. Now, at the end of the day, I have to make the decisions about how we might live our life, where we might live, what we might do. But it's not a threat to my leadership to say, oh, Whit, you have these amazing skills and gifts, and why would we not utilize them for the sake of our family? No. It's not because man is superior that women submit. But it is the design of God that ultimately he has been given the responsibility to lead. And the reasoning that Paul gives is rooted in the relationship between Christ and the church. Look again at verse 20. Three, the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body is himself its savior. Verse 24, now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to everything their husbands. So there's this correlation that Paul's saying between Christ and the church and husbands and wives. And as the church submits to Christ and everything, the church is led by Jesus, their good shepherd, the head, the, the Lord, the king, so too wives submit to their husbands. Now the difference here must be stated clearly. Jesus is sinless. Jesus is God. Jesus is infinitely wise. And he always leads his church, his bride, in the right way. So what this, what this passage does not mean for women who will one day be wives is that no matter what your husband says, you have to follow it unquestioningly, unwittingly, with complete silence, with utter reverence. No, that's not what it's saying at all. You submit to your husband as to the Lord. So if a husband leads his wife into sin, then her commitment to Christ is going to win every time. She must refuse sinful leadership. But there may be times of different opinions, and that's different. There may be times of perspectives that are not the same, and that's where submission is actually tested. Husbands should work towards collaborative leadership through love and service, and we'll talk about that in a moment. Husbands, men who will one day be husbands, your, your job is to lay down your life in love so that you love your wives into delightful submission where they want to follow you because they trust your leadership and your judgment and your wisdom. And even if they don't agree with the decision that you make in that moment, they trust in this whole picture that what you want for them is for their good, even when they not, may not be able to see it as you see it. Ultimately, the wife, however, is to follow her husband as he leads. There's a famous pastor in England in the 20th century, Martin Lloyd-Jones, and uh, one time his wife was asked about authority and submission. And uh, somebody asked Martin Lloyd-Jones' wife, so if you, if you say that at three in the morning, 
your husband wakes you up and says, honey, I need some ice cream. I need you to go make me some ice cream. I need you to go get me some ice cream. Does that mean that you have to do it? And she said, well, I would. And then I would call the doctor because my husband is clearly unwell. Do you see there? That even, if, even, if I don't, even if I don't agree, Miss Lloyd-Jones is saying, I, I'm going to defer to his leadership, but I'm not going to turn my brain off in the process. There, there's still clearly, there's, if I'm asking for ice cream at three in the morning, something's going on, right? Like something is not all together there. Again, submission does not mean silence either. Either Different wives and different marriages have different temperaments. So, for example, I know my marriage the best. Whitley and I talk often about decisions that need to be made. And often, if you've been in our home and you've seen our deliberations and you've seen how we interact in our home, you've seen that she often gives counsel and a perspective that is persuasive over my original thoughts. And a good leader is not going to walk into a conversation going, hey, this decision has been made. I don't care what you say. Here's where we're going. No, because again, as we'll talk about in a moment... Godly leadership in the life of a husband is one that lays down his life, even his preferences. Good leadership, future husbands will lean in close to listen well to the wisdom of a godly wife. And Paul reiterates this in verse 33 when he writes that wives are to respect their husbands. He gives this kind of encapsulating verse in verse 33. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself Let the wife see that she respects her husband. It's this delightful submission and respect and honor that displays God's good design. So women who will one day perhaps be wives, what does it mean to to pursue being a godly wife? Nothing more than pursuing being a godly woman. To grow in holiness, to grow in your love for the Lord and his word, to grow in your capacity to serve and to lead, lead others and, and to uh, share the, the gospel and to uh, know Christ and dwell in his word richly and memorize the scriptures and, and give wisdom when it's needed. Marriage is just a context. It's just a circumstance. So I say this to say this, say, say that to say this. If you as a woman or as a man, as we'll get to in a minute, make it your aim that I'm going to grow and mature and do all of these things so that I am going to be a unmissable candidate for marriage. I'm going to be such a stud of a godly husband that women around me who love Jesus will not be able to miss me. And I will get what my heart desires, which is a spouse. Or if I'm a woman, I'm just going to put all of my eggs in the basket. I'm going to grow in holiness, grow in godliness, so that there'll be no mistaking that I am just like top tier candidate to be a godly wife. If that's your aim, you are aiming towards something that God has not promised you. And so what happens when you put all of your work towards that thing that God has not promised you and it doesn't come to pass? Well, my fear is that you might start to think that God is not faithful. Or you might start to think, well, I haven't done enough for God to bless me as I want him to bless me. Again, this context that Paul is giving us of 
wives and husbands, of marriage is a picture of something greater. It's not the thing itself. So as I talk about women submitting to their own husbands or husbands loving their wives, this is one way godly women and godly men live out their lives in this world. And for some of you, for most of you, that's going to be true. That's going to be reality. But for some of you, it may not be. And what I want you to see even now, and I'll repeat this at the end. When you see Jesus face to face, and you've never experienced the covenant commitment of marriage, I am telling you, based on what God's word says clearly, if you've never been married, and one day you go see Jesus face to face, I know what you're not going to think. You're not going to think, he withheld good things from me. He wasn't as kind to me as he was to those other women or those other men. He, he shortchanged me in life. You're not going to think that. So don't think it now. Don't think it now. Don't think that if God doesn't give you what he hasn't promised you, that he's holding out on you. His wisdom and his desire to bless you and bring you joy is far greater and far more wise than you. So we trust him. All right, boys, you're up next. Look at verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So in the first passage, we have the delightful submission of wives. Second, in this larger passage, we have the loving leadership of husbands. So I hope you start to see how this complementary relationship fits together. You have this delightful submission of wives, this loving leadership of husbands. Young men, if God sees fit to give you a wife, then you will make it your aim to lay down that life for her. Because that's what Jesus did for his bride. Our controlling affection as men towards our wives is not domination. It's not control. It's not lust. It's not pride. It's love. And here is this call for husbands to love their wives as Jesus does the church, sanctifying her, cleansing her with the water of the word to present her to himself in splendor and holiness. I mean, that's quite a task. <clears throat> when I was getting married, you may have heard me tell this story before. When I was getting married, um, we'd had a wonderful rehearsal and rehearsal dinner. And it was just a great time with family and friends. And that morning we were getting ready, and the, the uh, Whitley and her bridesmaids were off taking pictures, and then the guys and the, uh, me and the groomsmen were taking pictures, and everything's been great. The whole day's been smooth. 
I haven't been nervous. You know, it's like the rest of your life. And everything has just been super chill. And then Whitley, uh, we exchange gifts. And, and one of the gifts that Whitley gives me before I see her on, in the ceremony is a Bible. And she had written something in the inside of the Bible. And um, it was just this kind of little sweet little note. But at the end of that note, she just said, let this be the foundation and center of our marriage. And in that moment, I started to freak out because I remembered what I always, I say always, what I had known to be true, but had not really stopped to consider in all of the celebration of the day, which is as Jesus lives to sanctify and cleanse his bride, to present her to himself in splendor, I, as a husband, now bear a real kind of responsibility for the spiritual well-being of my wife. What was once not my responsibility is now becoming my responsibility, and that freaked me out. I started to get really nervous because I started to think, I am not prepared for that. I am not capable of doing that. I am not mature enough for these things. I started to think about all of the things that I could do. I started to think about my own capacities, my own strengths. And it reminded me that loving leadership for a husband is a life of dependence. It's a life of recognizing weakness and leaning into Jesus who himself modeled dependence, right? I only do what the Father tells me to do. I only say what the Father tells me to say, Jesus says in his earthly ministry. So young men, if you desire a wife, then you are making it your aim to lay your life down for her and live in dependence on the Lord to day by day, moment by moment, lead her by loving her. This leadership is not a cutthroat, men win, women lose, sinful, worldly, by any means necessary kind of a thing. It's grounded in love, which means, as Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 13, the kind of way men we ought to lead our wives is patiently and with kindness, without envy or boasting, without arrogance, without being rude, with not, without insisting on your own way, not being irritable, not being resentful, not rejoicing at wrongdoing, but rejoicing with the truth, bearing all things, believing all things, hoping all things, enduring all things. Husbands love their wives into submission. So do you see the pattern here? Husbands are to love and care for and serve their wives, listen to them, take the responsibility for their flourishing and lead accordingly. My role as a husband is for the good of my wife. It's self-sacrifice for the one I love. And in response, the wife delightfully submits to his leadership and direction fully confident in his heart's desire to lead in such a way to make her holy and loved. 
It's why Paul can say that loving a wife is like the husband loving his own body. Because the two are now one. Christ does the same with his church, his body. He lives to make her holy and loved. So Paul takes us back to the Garden of Eden there in verse 31, right? He quotes, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This beautiful picture of the two becoming one before sin, before shame, before arrogance, before domination and abuse and stubbornness and all the rest. He wants us to see that's the picture. So young men, this is your call. If you were to one day be a godly husband, prepare to die. Prepare to die for the sake of your bride so that you might love them into submission. Pursue a kind of wisdom and holiness and leadership that draws them to follow you because following you means heading towards Jesus. So Paul repeats himself in verse 33. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself. Now, this leads us to the substance, the real thing that the picture of marriage points us to, Christ and the church. Just one verse, verse 32. This mystery is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. This mystery. Something hidden that needs to be revealed, right? We've heard this word in Ephesians before. It's a mystery, not Scooby-Doo, right? Not we just put all our heads together and look at the evidence and we figure it out. It's I have to have this revealed to me or else I won't see it. And Paul is saying, here's, here's the revelation. What God designed in Genesis chapter one is to show us something that happens at Pentecost. What, what, what God designed and showed us Thousands of years before Jesus comes on the scene was made for us to see what it means for Christ to lay down his life for his bride. Ever since the beginning, we can look back and see how marriages now point us to the ultimate marriage. Christ, the groom, lays down his life for the love of his bride. She delightfully submits to his loving leadership. Honor and glory and blessing abound. And God is praised, his design seen in creation as incomparably beautiful. But there has never been a marriage that has displayed the sign of the mystery correctly. It doesn't exist. At least not fully. Because two sinners coming together doesn't get rid of sin. They may grow in godliness, but they still represent the gospel as a broken picture. So, so you may be surrounded by marriages that are flourishing and, and honor Christ and, and model beautiful things about the gospel, loving leadership, delightful submission, humble repentance, forgiveness, joy. I pray that that's true for you. Some of you are surrounded by a marriage with its share of brokenness, with conflict. You may have even experienced the end of a marriage. And so, either way, 
Be careful. Whether you have seen fit or whether God has seen fit to put you in a context that is close to a good marriage or a bad one or one that no longer exists. This passage is calling on us not to look at the gospel through our marriages. It's calling us to look at the real thing and then say, how have the marriages in my life around me, how do they compare to that? We start from above and work our way down. We do not start from below and work our way up. The passage is calling on us to look at the true thing, Christ and his church first, and then see how the images and pictures that marriages display around us line up. So if you've been close to a marriage, you can see that they're not perfect. You guys are all old enough. I mean, it's a weird thing. I'm looking mostly at junior high kids because like, I feel like high school kids mostly get this. It's a weird thing to like move into that level of maturity as a, as a human being when you recognize that like, my parents are human beings. You know what I mean? Like you just think sometimes that they're just like genies. Like they just like do whatever you think they, you want them to do. And like they just kind of magically whisper around and do everything that needs to be done. Like they're people. They're human beings. They're image bearers made in the image of God, broken by sin, just like you and me. So even close enough to a marriage, you recognize that there's brokenness. You can see that they're not perfect, but by God's grace, they can still point you to that future hope that all Christians share. Married or not, the steadfast love and unswerving commitment that Jesus has made to us no matter what. And I say these things because for those of you in the room who are not yet married and may one day be married, there will be brokenness in your marriage too. And you may experience a kind of brokenness in your marriage that you are not currently expecting. So remember this passage. And by God's grace, press on, even in the brokenness. Commit to Jesus first that you will display the truth of his gospel wherever he has placed you. You may also never experience marriage. It is a mystery of God's providence that he gives us desires that he does not fulfill. So remember this passage. And by God's grace, do not despair because marriage in this life is just the sign. It's important, but it's not ultimate. It's temporal. It's not eternal. And those who never experience the covenant commitment of a husband or a wife on this earth will not feel shorted. They will not feel forgotten. They will not feel left out when they come to see their groom face to face. So even now, even now in your singleness, in your not marriedness, remember that. And remember, men, what does it mean to be a godly husband? Nothing more than being a godly man in a different kind of circumstance. Women, what does it mean to be a godly wife? Nothing more than being a godly woman in a different circumstance. Students, you are not in control 
of your circumstances. You're not. You can make plans, but the Lord directs our steps. You can see the beauty of marriage right now and let it point you once again to the beauty of the gospel. All of us were unlovely, not being chosen, overlooked. And in the kindness of God, he said, I want her to be mine. I want him to be mine forever. And the beauty of the gospel is we come to Christ who is drawing us to himself, who makes a commitment that is unbreakable. He prepares us. He cleanses us. He makes us fit for him. He does it all. He removes our sin as far as the east is from the west so that we might dwell in his house forever. Marriage is a picture. That, that's the substance. That's the real thing. So let me pray. Give you guys some time to discuss this in your groups. We'll come back at the end with some announcements.